Please take out your Bibles and turn with me once again to Mark's Gospel. And it would be helpful if I had my Bible. I always fear doing that once and it happened, so hopefully that will be the last time. And if somebody can preach without the Bible in front of them, I'm not exactly sure what they're preaching. So as we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we are in people, we are people in great need. And you have promised to meet our need, Father, through your word and spirit. So would they be active now? Father, may your word before us be our rule. Your Holy Spirit be our great teacher. And your supreme glory be our great concern now and always. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are on week 56 of... Jesus according to the Bible, an exposition of the gospel of Mark. And as I mentioned in my email, uh, there's a purpose, and I hope you will see it, as to why on earth, when a dozen or more sermons could be preached from this passage, why we're looking at it in one big picture. Here we are at the passion of Jesus, passion Latin for suffering. Last week we saw Jesus suffering at the hands of his friends. Today we are seeing him suffer at the hands of his enemies. And next week we will see him suffer at the hand of his Father. That just shows us that the suffering of Christ was multidimensional. There was mental suffering, physical suffering, and spiritual suffering. Just like all of us when we suffer as well. It's often a combination of that. Last week, uh, we saw the crisis, that crisis causes, the, the crisis that causes the most anxiety in most of us is a loss of personal relationships. That's what keeps us up at night. And Jesus is losing personal relationships with his disciples who are sleeping instead of standing watch with him to comfort and sleeping instead of themselves being alert and aware to the coming danger and temptation. When thinking about that opposition that, that uh, causes many of us anxiety, um, what is it that, that is at the heart of that opposition? And what we will see today is what is at the, the heart are lies. When people lie about you. David in Psalm 120 says this, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. And Jesus here is facing the lies of enemies, the, the deceitful tongue. More than any other religion, Christianity is historically rooted and historically reliable. Christianity is historically rooted. It is grounded upon events. The gospel is not good advice, counsel about what you and I must do, but rather it is what it literally means. It is good news. News about what has been done. It's not only historically rooted, it's historically reliable. We see this in Jewish history and in Roman history. A first century Jewish historian by the name of Josephus wrote these words. And there arose about this time Jesus, a wise man, 
For he was a doer of marvelous deeds, a teacher of men who received the truth with pleasure. He led away many Jews and also many of the Greeks. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross on his impeachment by the chief men among us, those who had loved him at first did not cease. And even now the tribe of Christians, so named after him, has not yet died out. That's Josephus in the first century, and my friends in here in 2017, this tribe has not died out either. And so our approach to the text this morning will be the first to consider the historical scene. That's why I wanted to talk about history, Christianity being historically rooted and historically reliable. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to consider the historical scene as described by our text, and then we're going to study and take a look at the redemptive historical significance. In other words, the salvation history significance of these events. Let's first look at this first part of the historical scene. Jesus is condemned as deserving death. He's before the council at night. The Sanhedrin is the council made up of chief priests, elders, and scribes. It's the Jewish ruling body. Caiaphas is the high priest and he served for 19 years. He's got ability as a diplomat and administrator. And we read in John that it was Caiaphas who prophesied that one man dying for the nation would be better than many people dying. And oh, how right he was. Here's the Supreme Court. And this Supreme Court has the strictest rules to guard against any miscarriage of justice. And yet, we will see time and again, they violate their own rules. This trial is a preliminary inquiry. It's a grand jury. And if you remember anything, it's this. It's a verdict looking for evidence. He's declared guilty before being proven guilty. The verdict was decided before the charge. Um, in thinking about this, I think about people's approach to Bible study, right? They already know what they want to find, and they find it, as opposed to going into it with eyes wide open, asking the Lord to show you what's there. There was a lack of evidence, we see in verse 55, and an abundance of false witnesses and lies in verses 56 through 59. Jesus, though, we heard, is silent. He symbolically emphasized that there is no genuine charge that's been brought against him. There's no substantiated accusation. And therefore, he didn't need to respond. One commentator writes this, Even as a captive and with a well-orchestrated human machinations against him, Jesus cannot be discredited. Attempts to discredit Jesus no doubt characterize every generation, even those like ours that purport to respect all religious beliefs. A false testimony never carries the conviction of truth. Now, because the witnesses couldn't provide the desired result, the high priest jumps in to question Jesus. First, he asked a question about evidence. There's silence. Then he asks a question about identity. And it's a statement, really, rather than a question. And Jesus responds to this question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? 
And here's the irony. The high priest is giving a full confession of who Jesus is that Mark gives right at the beginning of his gospel. But let's look at the answer of Jesus in verse 62. He now revealed the identity which he had kept veiled throughout his ministry. And it's only in the light of the necessary suffering that he openly divulges his identity as God's son. He replies in the affirmative and applying to himself the words of Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7. And he's asserting the effect that though he was now being judged by them, the day would one day arrive when they would be judged by him. He's looking ahead to his enthronement and his return. Jesus gives an answer and the court makes a decision. The response of the high priest to this statement is blasphemy. How could this man who is being deserted by his followers, who's standing powerless before them, how can he possibly be the glorious Messiah? The very idea was blasphemous. The high priest and the others were not concerned to test the truth of Jesus' claim. Jesus' accusers never asked themselves if perhaps it was indeed true before they rejected his claim and him. What is their decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Remember Jesus' predictions in chapter 8, 9, and 10? Look back with me to chapter 10, verses 32 through 34 where we read this in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the high priest, the chief priest, and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. My friends, this is not happening to Jesus. Jesus is orchestrating it. It's all an unfolding of God's sovereign plan. Mark has, is arranging his material for a purpose. And notice this literary technique. Peter's denial is taking place at the same time as Jesus' trial before the council. There's an anticipation and a flashback. And by this arrangement, and this is important, Mark is showing us that Peter is on trial as well. Here we see Jesus is denied by his disciple. The spotlight is on Peter. He is following Jesus, but now he's following him at a distance. Peter denies knowing Jesus, and then he disowns him completely. When confronted by a servant girl and bystanders, Peter denies and disowns. He first pleads ignorance. And then he denies he belongs to the group, and then he disowns any link at all to Jesus. 
There's a movement from, I don't know what you're talking about, to invoking a curse and swearing an oath. Peter curses himself and others. He doesn't mention Jesus' name. And remember Jesus' words earlier, whoever is ashamed of me. Peter is ashamed of Jesus. The denial is total. Even in verse 68, we see from no in theory, a theoretical knowledge to no in practical knowledge. But remember, Peter broke down and wept. Evidence is here of, of beginnings of repentance. He realized what he had done. We know from Scripture that he later repented and was restored. And we see that from chapter 16, verse 7 and on. Both Peter and Judas sinned against the Lord. Peter owned up and confessed and acknowledged. And Judas didn't. Peter is on trial. Putting these two trials side by side in this sandwich creates a sermon without words on the meaning of bearing witness under persecution. Because Peter, like Jesus, is being questioned. The whole council and the high priest is questioning Jesus and a servant girl is questioning Peter. Both are charged with something that will get them into big trouble. There are faults and there are true charges. Peter, like Jesus, responds to the charge. Jesus, however, declares truth. Peter denies truth. Peter, like Jesus, is cursed. Jesus receives the curse unfairly. Peter is self-condemned and justly. Peter, the most insightful of the disciples when compared to Jesus, is shown to be an absolute, total failure. Because Jesus was showing that they couldn't die with him, but needed him to die for them. Now, after this incident with Peter, Mark brings us back to the action of what is happening to Jesus. Jesus is condemned to death by the Jews, by the religious leaders, and he will now be delivered over to death by the Gentiles, the Roman political authorities. As we see, Jesus is delivered to be crucified. From the council to the governor, Pontius Pilate. Here you see Jewish law and Roman rule coming together. Now, legally, the council was, was not legally allowed to meet until daybreak, but it, and it couldn't meet in the high priest's house, nor could it try and condemn a man on the same day, and yet you see that all taking place here. Pontius Pilate. Everybody's heard of Pontius Pilate, right? It's, he's the ruler in some backwater providence of the Roman Empire who would be forgotten if not for this drama. And those of you that are familiar with the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed know that a few folks make, a, make an entrance there, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and Mary, and Pontius Pilate. What a way to be remembered. 
Now our approach to this scene will be to look at the questions. First, Pilate's question to Jesus in verse 2. Remember verse, chapter 8, verse 29, who do you say that I am, Jesus asked. It's a statement with a question uh, implied. Jesus' answer is yes, yes I am, but I'm not the kind of king you think I am. There's neither direct denial or direct affirmation. It's suggestive. Jesus is saying to Pilate, you would do well to consider who I am. You would do well to consider who it is before you. But then Pilate turns and questions are sent out to the crowd. We see that in verses 9, 12, and 14, and it's a tactical blunder. It's a dangerous situation because he's passing control, as it were, from himself as the magistrate to the crowd. And on the ground of political expediency, Pilate decides that he has no choice but to yield to the crowd. And we see what influence a crowd can have as we see what's happening in the United States these days. Mark simply leaves it as a mystery. Not that they should choose Barabbas, but they should so strongly condemn Jesus. Mark wants us to think about that. Notice Jesus is being delivered. And the idea behind that of what men are doing to Jesus is behind that is the guiding hand of God. Jesus' trial before Pilate is unjust. Jesus' trial before the council is irregular. And here is a profound irony. In order to get Jesus killed, the Jews accused him of of being a political Messiah, the very thing they wanted, but which Jesus refused to be. Now, this is the historical scene of what is taking place in the middle of the night and in the early morning hours of Jesus' last day. Jesus is condemned by the religious. He's denied by a friend. He's delivered over to death by the irreligious. Now let's take a look at the redemptive historical significance of these events, then and now. These historical events are at the heart of our salvation from sin and death. Our passage is most definitely about Jesus, but it is also most definitely about us. Because the actions of Peter show us that we are sinful by nature. You and I, all of us, are sinful by nature. And because we are sinful by nature, we must acknowledge that we can be deceived by sin. Peter's boast and bravado blinded him to the possibility of his sin, of his fall. His own weakness and frailty would lead him to disown his Lord rather than to deny himself. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's Peter. That's all of us. And because we are sinful by nature, we also must recognize that we are tempted to sin. The inquiries of a servant girl were enough to draw out the horrible realities of Peter's heart. His example is a warning to disciples then and now that faithful witness to Jesus is most important and most easily betrayed 
in simple and ordinary actions and words. It's in everyday matters that disciples are true martyrs, true witnesses. I don't doubt that if Peter was on trial before the council or the Romans, he would have stood up and said, yes, I know Jesus. Yes, I am following him. Because Peter had already said, I will go to the death. But it's a servant girl. It's a 12 to 14 year old girl that says, you're one of his followers, aren't you? And bold Peter, arrogant Peter. What does he do? He wilts. He folds. That's the challenge for us when our neighbors and coworkers come to us and say, you believe Jesus is the only way to salvation? Do you hedge? Do you hem or haul? I'm sure all of us here in court under oath would have no problem saying, yes, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But how about at work, on the playground, at school? That's where the witness is. And because we are sinful by nature, we must be honest about sin. How to resist sin when tempted to be, we need to be ruthlessly honest. Because the church can be so honest about sin because it's so convinced of grace. Did y'all hear that? We can be so honest about sin because we are so convinced of grace. Recognizing our own individual sin is not sufficient for salvation, but it's essential. Okay, well then what is sufficient? How could Peter be restored into a right relationship with God? We know that he is. How? The redemptive historical significance of this scene is not only that it shows us that we are sinful by nature, and that is true bad news, but it also goes on to show us that we are saved by substitution. And my friends, that is true good news. Because whereas the actions of Peter show us that we are sinful by nature, the actions of Jesus show us that we are saved by substitution. Malcolm Muggeridge, a 20th century English journalist and author, in his book, The Chronicles of Wasted Time, tells the story of during World War II, he was catching a flight from Africa back home to England, and a colonel with a wooden leg took his seat on the flight. And Malcolm Muggeridge was a little bit miffed that he got bumped from his flight. I guess he was already a paying customer and had to get off the plane so this colonel with a wooden leg would get the seat. That plane crashed. All died. Substitution, life for life. One lives, the other dies. Almost accidental, by chance. But Jesus' substitutionary death would not be accidental. Not be by chance, but on purpose. The author Ernest Gordon, in his book, Through the Valley of the River Kwai, that was made into the film To End All Wars, tells the story of the, the railway in Burma, the Death Railway. And he tells of an incident that there was a missing shovel. All the prisoners were out in front of the Japanese, and there was a, miss, a missing shovel. And the Japanese captor said, everybody's going to be killed. But one soldier steps up. 
He volunteers. He steps up and he's killed by the guards. And then later the shovel is found. He died to spare others. He died in their place. He died as a substitute. And here we see that Jesus' substitutionary death would be purposeful. Jesus stepped forward. And you see the exchange of two prisoners, Jesus and Barabbas, the tragic irony in Pilate's amnesty, because a convicted murderer is set free, and in his place, an innocent man is condemned to death. The innocent dies so the guilty can go free. Barabbas really was the rebel, really was the insurrectionist, that Jesus was not, but who was accused of being. My friends, here is a picture of substitutionary atonement. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus was not dying for his crimes, but for the crimes of others. Not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. He did not die for himself. He died for us. Though innocent, Jesus is put to death, whereas Barabbas, justly condemned to death, goes free. And behind all of this is the wise and sovereign hand and plan of God. Though innocent and knowing no evil, he gives his life as a sacrifice for many, as he said he would. So that sinners can be saved because Jesus came not to call the righteous, we read in chapter 2, but sinners. And indeed, Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin so that we could be the righteousness of God. Now, in this description of the scene, Mark goes out of his way to make it clear that Jesus was not crucified for any crime that he had done. Jesus dies the death that sinners should die. Well, we are here at the, the conclusion. And some of you have a, a desire, okay, what's the takeaway you know, we just heard this description of what's taking place. What's the takeaway? What's the application? What's the practical theology? Well, my friends, what could be more practical than to know who you are and what Jesus has done for you? You and I are sinful by nature. You are a sinner saved by substitution. That is Jesus substituting his life for yours. Therefore, given these two realities of being sinful by nature and saved by substitution, you possess two things, both a deep humility and a bold confidence. Because salvation, here we see it, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because when it comes to securing our salvation Jesus is all alone. We saw it in the garden. We see it now in the trial. Jesus is failed by his friends and he is opposed by his enemies. Jesus does for man. Jesus does for you what man, what you could never do for yourself. Jesus was humiliated before men so that you and I would not be humiliated before God. He did all of this for us and in our place.
1738, the English hymn writer Charles Wesley well described what was going on in our text in the verses, but especially in the refrain of his well-known hymn, And Can It Be That I Should Gain, which we will be singing together in just a few moments. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We're going to end with that question. A question that when continually asked and answered and leads to a life of love for God and a life of love and service to neighbor. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this historical account of Jesus' trial. And indeed, the trial of Peter. And we see Jesus' faithfulness and fidelity to the truth, and we see Peter's unfaithfulness and, and, and disdain for the truth. Oh God, we acknowledge that apart from your gracious work in our lives, your gracious work of dying in our place and on our behalf, we would be lost. Oh, Father, help us to really grasp the truth that we are far more sinful than we could ever think we are. But we are also more loved and accepted in Christ than we could ever hope or imagine. Father, would you hold those two realities before us so that indeed we could possess a deep humility and a bold confidence as we follow our suffering crucified Savior, but the one who is risen, who is ascended, and who is promised to return. Father, all of our hope is found in him. We pray in his name. Amen.